Section 3 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the Chinese Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 3 Death Grips Part 2 Of the major part of my career I need say little. They who have read the Shanghai papers of the last few weeks will have seen it blazoned forth again and again, with wearisome iteration ever with the addition of some fictitious detail to excuse the repetition of the stale story. I will therefore go over the old ground no further than to say that until recently I held the position of sub-editor on that thriving daily, the Eastern Echo, with every prospect of ultimately fighting my way to the top of the journalistic ladder. Mental science had always been to me a topic of absorbing interest to which I had devoted all my spare time, following with avidity the abstruse speculations in both its branches, both the psychic and metaphysic. Though the transcendentalism of Descartes, Kant, and Reed had a great fascination for me, it was to mesmerism and the allied phenomena of hypnotism that I directed most of my researches. It was in the arduous pursuit of these that I came in contact with spiritualism before leaving home for the East, and in the sanguineness of youth dreamed that here was the medium by which the phenomena of mind were to be brought to the demonstrable level of the exact sciences. In this I was unfortunate, for in the attempt of its devotees to pick the lock of eternity and reveal matters behind the awful veil, my eyes were slowly yet surely opened to their rank charlatanism. Medium after medium was detected in the act of strumming surreptitious banjos or rapping on the table with would-be invisible fingers. The result was that with the rashness of young blood I held that the induction which applied so fittingly to spiritualism was equally true of mesmerism and hypnotism, by the aid of which they claimed to work wonders, and I angrily denounced the whole thing as a hollow fraud. In the revulsion of disgust, I resolved to devote my time to a science a little more positive, one at least in which I could study the resultant phenomena of the mind's action without being basely cheated by blatant charlatanism. So I turned my attention with renewed zeal to the sister branch, metaphysics. Here, at least, I was not unsuccessful in my investigations, and may claim as the issue of my speculations on mind as related to matter the authorship of two or three treatises, which the schools have been pleased to look upon with approval, while lauding their depth of research and perspicuity. It was shortly after the issue of the last pamphlet, that I left London for Shanghai to take up my duties on the staff of the journal from which I have been so lately torn. But I still retained my interest in metaphysics, reading eagerly every fresh book that appeared to cast a new light on this most elusive of subjects. With hypnotism, I, however, declined to have anything more to do. My awakening from the dreams of the supernatural had been thorough and complete, and I was resolved never again to allow myself to be duped by specious appearances, however plausible. In justice to myself, I must add that I was not unwilling to admit a certain modicum of truth in the experiments of Mesmer and Braid. I still believed it possible to throw the human mind into a mesmeric sleep by keeping the eye strained on a black wafer stuck on a blank white wall. But I emphatically denied all psychic influence explaining the phenomenon by the theory of the mind, being thrown into a state of morbid activity through the abnormal strain on the attention and the reflex action of an excited imagination. The next time I met Rawdon was out at the racecourse, 
Ethel and I had been to see the review of the volunteers. After it was over and the people began to move from their seats in the direction of Nankin Road, she slipped away for a moment to speak to a friend whom she had spied among the crowd, begging me to sit still till she came back. I was idly watching the coolies gathering the pennons that were stuck about the field when someone squeezing his way between the benches in front of me trod heavily on my toe. As he turned to apologize, I recognized Rawdon. I saw him glance swiftly round as though in search of someone, and it needed no intuition to know he was looking for Ethel. "'She is over there,' I said in answer to his glance. "'Sit down.' He dropped into the vacant chair beside me, and made a few commonplace remarks on the review, while the people filed out in front of me, asking carelessly, "'How was Mrs. Keith?' "'Very well, thanks. I might say exceedingly well in both mind and body.' I could not help letting a small note of triumph creep into my tones, but Rawdon seemed not to notice it, or at least he ignored it. "'Pray give her my best regards,' he said absently as though about to rise. "'Don't go away yet,' I pleaded with a malicious grin, stung by his apparent indifference. "'Ethel will be back in a moment, and I am sure she'll be awfully pleased to see such an old friend.' He swung round on me then, a curious light in his shifty blue eyes. "'Keith,' he said with suppressed vehemence. You shall both suffer for this. I was more amused than angry as I inquired in mild surprise. Suffer for what, my dear fellow? He had suppressed the flash of feeling he had shown, which I regretted, as he sneered. You are exceedingly dense if you require me to recapitulate the insult you two put upon me. Insult? I scoffed. What a very curious view you take of it, Rawdon. You will take a very serious view of it, he retorted significantly. I could not help smiling at his vagaries. "'My dear man,' I said impatiently, "'spare me your idle threats. What is it? Immolation at the stake? Or perhaps chains and the stool of repentance in your castle dungeon?' "'What a pity it is,' I mused, "'that Shanghai can boast of no Bastille.' But he remained unmoved by my levity. "'Nevertheless, you shall both pay dearly for that day's work,' he repeated as he rose and sauntered away. I could not resist flinging back one taunt more ere he got out of earshot. You had your chance, and failed to capture the prize. Your fault, my son, or your misfortune. I did not tell Ethel anything of this when she returned. I knew her generous soul enough to be sure she would worry herself, and claim the blame for having allowed Rawdon to think too much of her, though I know that she never gave him a scrap of encouragement. End of Section 3